following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. To uh, feed his lambs and to shepherd his sheep. So Peter was not the church's first pope, as some people think, but he was almost certainly the church's first pastor. He was the church's first shepherd, in one sense. Uh, and uh, he, went on, he went on to dictate his own gospel account to uh, Mark. Very likely Mark is Peter's gospel, uh, although we call it Mark's gospel because Mark wrote it, actually wrote it down physically. And as an apostle, Peter was uh, called to write scripture with the authority of Jesus himself. He was an eyewitness of what had happened during those marvellous days, days when the whole direction of the human race and of history was changed. So this letter in front of us is what Peter, uh, uh, this letter in front of us is uh, what Peter was writing as a shepherd to Christ's scattered sheep. So Peter's our author. He was a Jewish fisherman who'd met Jesus and become a Christian and he was never the same again. But who, who does he write to? Now I think we have a map here. Do we have a map of uh, Asia Minor? So if you look at uh, what is modern day Turkey and the northern part of it on the right hand side of the map you've got Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Pontus um, in the northern part of what was then Asia Minor. So he writes to those who are Elect exiles in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter's writing to believers in um, Asia Minor, which of course is modern day Turkey. And most likely he's writing to Gentile believers, although that is disputed. Some commentators believe he was writing to uh, Jews of the diaspora, uh, those who've been scattered uh, over the years who were living in this part of the world. But I think most likely he was writing to Gentiles, and there are various verses that point to that. So he was writing to largely non-Jews. These were people who were most likely converted from paganism to Christianity. But there were probably some Jewish believers scattered in among them. But what's interesting is the way that Peter addresses them. So remember that Peter has this Jewish background. uh, And here he calls them God's elect. They were chosen or selected. uh, He says in verse 2. And they were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So what does he mean by all of this? I'm not going to spend too long on this because there's so much more that's uh, further on in our passage that's so important. But as I said, Peter was a Jew by birth and he knew that the Jews were God's chosen people. They were his elect. They were his set-apart people. They were set apart from the other nations to be his. But what's interesting is that Peter's words tell us here that he'd come to realise that God's purposes to have a special people for himself had now extended to include the Gentile nations. You know, the Jews thought of the Gentiles, by and large, as dogs, as second-class citizens. Many uh, Jewish people believe that uh, Gentiles were only created by God to provide fuel for the fires of hell. Not very complimentary, really. 
But here, uh, Peter's come to realise that the Gentile people were not second-class citizens, and maybe, he's, maybe he once thought, in fact, quite far from it. They were included now, and in chapter 2 he calls them a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, so that's kind of something about the life of Peter. But let, let me just give you a very, very quick summary of what this letter is about. Uh, it's hard to give a summary of Peter's letter, because Peter goes in one direction, then he goes in another direction, then he goes in another direction. And there isn't, you know, when you read Paul saying the letter to, his letter to the Romans, he has a kind of linear way of thinking. He goes from A to Z, A to Z, uh, uh, as he's, he's thinking, whereas Peter doesn't do that. He kind of goes in different directions as he works his way through his letter. But if there's one thread that weaves its way through this letter, it is this, that Peter is preparing his readers for persecution and for suffering. He's teaching them, teaching them how to live during times of trials and hardship. So that's my first point of four. The context of this letter is a Galilean fisherman who's met Jesus, the God-man, and has been transformed by him, and now he's a pastor to the wider church, and he's addressing Gentile believers who are facing imminent persecution. So what Peter does here is he reminds his readers of what God has done for them. And that takes us to my second heading, which is born again due to mercy. Verse 3, born again due to mercy. So let's read together. I'm reading from the ESV. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. Last time. So Peter breaks out into praise, and he praises the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is to be blessed. You always get this sense that Peter is overwhelmed with what God has done. But notice here that Peter says that we are born again on account of mercy. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So let's pause for a moment and think about what mercy is. I think mercy is an aspect of love. I think it's an aspect of God's love. You know, whenever we think about love, it's a very complicated thing. I love my wife, but I also love English fish and chips. But those loves are not on the same level. You see, love is complex and it's nuanced, especially the love of God. So what is love? Well, if we escape the kind of Hollywood versions of love, we might say something like this, that love is the enduring commitment of a person to the good of another. Love is the enduring commitment a commitment of will to the good of another. It's kind of the opposite of Hollywood love. Hollywood love is this. I love you so long as you make me happy. I love you so long as you make me happy. That's Hollywood love. It's the love that, that our culture is saturated with, certainly in the Western world. I love you so long as you make me happy. So basically it's self-referential love, the way that we think about love. But love in the Bible, the love of God is love that gives itself. It's an act of will for the welfare of somebody else. So when, when I think about the love of God, and remember I said to you that love, the love of God is a nuanced thing, I think 
have three components to love. I'm not limiting love to these three things, but it includes patience, it includes grace, and it includes mercy. In Ephesians 2, chapter 4, uh, Paul tells us that God is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. So love means that God is merciful towards us. So what is mercy? Well, I think mercy is God's love directed towards us in our pain, in our misery, in our distress. Even when our distress is self-inflicted, it's God's compassion which seeks to redeem and restore broken sinners to himself and to wholeness. There's something of, of God being moved in compa- compassion towards people in his mercy. So Peter writes, according to his great mercy, on account of his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. So how does God show mercy? Well, he shows mercy in granting us new birth, in a new life which is saturated with hope, as we'll come to in a minute. So here Peter is speaking of the basics of Christian experience. He's speaking of the foundational pieces of the Christian life. So what Um, So, Peter is speaking about what God does for us when we come to him in repentance and in faith, trusting in Christ. So, we are born again through his mercy. So, what does it mean uh, to be born again? Uh, I'm going to come on a bit later on to living hope and think about that uh, in a few minutes. What does it mean to be born again? Being born to a living hope. You know, being born again, or what we call the new birth, is something that Jesus talked about in John chapter 3. Being born again is a miracle. It's not a decision that we make. It's a, it's a gift from God. It's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, where we're awakened from spiritual death and into spiritual life. Or to use the language of Ezekiel, which I love, Ezekiel 36, God takes out our heart of stone, that hard heart of stone, which is hard in rebellion against God. It's kind of calcified by sin. Um, And he replaces that heart of stone with a heart of flesh, a heart that's soft and yielding towards God, a heart that's that's tender, and a heart with love towards others and towards God. So, the new birth is this, taking out the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. So, we often talk about justification. If you go to the book of Galatians, if you go to the book of Romans, then there's a lot about what God has done for us legally. So we are guilty before him. And Paul spends lots of his time thinking about justification, being acquitted, being uh, our standing before God. is changed so that we are acquitted before him. We are no longer under his condemnation. Um, but justification really is what God does for us in changing our legal status. But regeneration is what God does in us. This is the new birth. It's what God does in us. So let me try and illustrate this with reference to our first birth, to our natural birth. So for all of us, unless you were kind of parachuted in from Mars or something, for all of us there was a time when we lived in our mother's womb. And very likely we were content and peaceful. Um, but that world of being in your mother's womb is one of darkness. I looked this up and I'm teaching, uh, helping my son to learn biology at the moment. Only 1% of light reaches the baby in the womb. 
Uh, and of course the woman has clothes on as well, the mother has clothes on as well, so it's a pretty dark place to be. So in the womb, we're in a place of darkness, we are listening mainly to our mother's heartbeat, uh, breathing, her digestion system, and maybe we hear our mother's voice and some sounds outside, uh, uh, from external to where we are, but essentially we're living in a kind of bubble of our own, our, our own world that we live in. You know, it's not that we're not close to the external world, we are. The external world is all around us, but there is a thick veil of tissue around us, stopping us from seeing and experiencing the external world. But as soon as we're born, everything changes. We begin to breathe our own air. We feel the temperature of the room that we're born into. We, we hear sounds clearly. And as we open our eyes, we begin to see the world with its shapes and its colours. We're awakened to a new world. Now, our natural birth, our first birth, can teach us much about our spiritual birth, our second birth. You know, before we're born again, we kind of, sorry, before we're born again, spiritually, uh, we live in our own bubble. In a significant sense, we, we live and move in our own existence, in our own realm of, of ourself, a world of our own thoughts, a world of our own plans and desires. Uh, and we're dead to God. I certainly was dead to God before uh, uh, I was born again at the age of 18. I was dead to God. I was indifferent to him. I was indifferent to his creation. I didn't see the beauty of a tree or of a sunset. I never thought about those things. I was kind of dead to God's creation. So, and, and Gethsemane and Calvary and the empty tomb, they meant nothing to me. I had no love for Christ. And I had no inward sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. My instinct was never to cry, Abba, Father. I had no assurance that my destiny was to be with God in heaven forever one day. But when we're born again, and we're, we're awakened to God, a kind of whole new world opens up to us. Uh, once we had, uh, and sorry, now we have this new testimony, and we say, once I was blind, but now I can see. I'm alive to God. So new birth is nothing less than coming out of the race of death, the race of Adam, and coming to the race of life, Jesus Christ. It's being part of a new people, a people who are alive to God. And maybe if before we were born again, we thought of God as a kind of tyrant, a condemning judge, and there's a sense in which he was. He was our judge. We were condemned by his, uh, by his holiness and by his being a perfect judge and his righteousness. Once our spiritual eyes are opened and we're born again and we are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in what he's done for us legally, then although we see that God is a holy God and he is just and righteous, he's now our father and we're in his family and we know that he, we come to realise that he really cares for us, he loves us. And he will do for all eternity. We see that God is good, he is kind. And we see the heart of God who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all. All of a sudden we see the goodness of God. And no longer do we live in our own heads any longer with our pitiful thoughts kind of going round and round. Uh, it's different after we're born again. We, we come to live by truth, trusting in the promises of God for our lives. 
So you can see why Jesus said you must be born again. It's fundamental. It's a divine imperative. Christians are not just nicer people. They are new creatures. They're awakened to God and to Christ's kingdom. When um, my wife Julie and I lived in London 20 years ago, I think, uh, we knew a man in our church who came to Christ. He came, became a, a new believer. He came from a godless family. He was radically transformed. Um, born again and he went home and he talked to his mother who was not a believer and he said to his mother all that had happened to him that he'd become a Christian he was a new person in Christ and she said to him oh you've just been brainwashed and he said to her he said you know what mum he said that's a good thing before my mind was full of rubbish he said I had lust towards women I had envy of other people's success I was full of pride my mind was full of terrible wickedness He said, my mind needed to be washed. He was brainwashed in one sense, but his brain was washed of all the wickedness of sin. You see, new birth is the entrance to life. It's the entrance to true life. But you might ask, well, um, how do I know if I'm born again? Well, I think if you're born again, you have this witness deep inside you that your sins are forgiven you for Jesus' sake. You have this sense that God is your Father. We have this inner sense, um, that we have this inner witness of the Holy Spirit that reminds us that we're a child of God. And we have this settled conviction that when we die, our destination is heaven, it's not hell. Before I was born again when I was 18 years old, and I really came to Christ, I used to lie awake, terrified in my bed at night that I was going to go to hell. And then when God did a work of grace in my life, I've never doubted ever since that I'm a child of God, I belong to him and my destiny is to be in heaven with him forever. So you might say, well, I don't think I'm born again. What do I do? Well, you need to remember this, that, that new birth is a gift from God. It's a gift that he gives to us. We have to confess, confess our sin. We have to confess our need to him. We need to repent of our sinful lives and we have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to come to him with the empty hands, hands, with with empty hands, except come to God in faith and receive from him a gift, which is the gift of new birth. The Apostle John tells us in his his, uh, um, gospel, the Apostle John says, to all who received Christ, it literally means in the Greek, to all who take Christ to themselves, he gives them the right to become children of God. It's a wonderful scripture. So new birth is one of the most precious gifts that God grants to us. Of many gifts that God gives to us, but new birth is a a remarkable gift of God's mercy and his grace. But as we follow the train of thought of Peter this morning, uh, what I want us to see is that the new birth opens to us a living hope. We are born again to a living hope, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this is my third heading, a living hope. You know, hope is uh, essential to human well-being. I think it's fair to say that without hope, we die. And history is full of examples of that. Let me give you one. In 1942, the British and Australian armies were defeated in Singapore. And 80,000 Allied prisoners were taken captive by the Japanese. 
the Dutch military was defeated in what is now Indonesia uh, and the American army was defeated in the Philippines by the Japanese and the Japanese had a huge number of prisoners of, prisoners of war on their hands and you will probably know that the Japanese kept their prisoners in camps in terrible conditions and treated them in the most uh, wicked and depraved ways you can ever imagine huge numbers of them were worked to death uh, here in Thailand building the Thai-Burma what's now called the death railway one man died for every sleeper that was put down in the building of that, of that railroad if you've not seen the, the railway man it's an excellent movie which kind of explores the themes of what happened to some of these prisoners the railway man but in those terrible World War II Japanese prisoners of war camps rumours were common rumours would spread around the camps that the Allies were about to win the war and defeat the Japanese and the, the prisoners got this idea that they would soon be liberated and they would get their hopes up that they would be released from these terrible conditions and that they, and that they, would, that they would go home but right up until the end of 1945 or the end of the war in 1945 their hopes were always dashed the rumours weren't true there was no liberation for them on the horizon and every time they realised that they'd been misinformed, many men just gave up on living. So I knew a man, an Australian man, who's a very good friend of mine, who died a few years ago at the age of 90, preacher of the gospel, but he spent three and a half years in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. And he said to me one day, he said, I remember occasions when it was discovered that those rumours that we were going to be released were not true, they were false and he said many men just curled up on the floor and they died. He said hundreds died in that way. They just, they just gave up on living. And uh, the reason that they died was just very simple. They lost hope. And my friend said to me, he said, and I've never forgotten his words, he said, I realised in those days that you can die any time or anywhere if you lose hope to live. See, hope is one of the fundamental things we need to exist, and it's one of the foundations of the Christian faith. It's one of the essentials that the, 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 that the believer is born into. You know, hope is the, the music of the Bible. It's the atmosphere of the Bible. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians that these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. And the, the kind of inference is that Pretty much everything else will not remain, but these things will remain for all eternity. Now, what is hope? Well, in contemporary culture, we often use hope to mean something like wishful thinking. So we hope for good exam results. Uh, we hope that we'll be happy in our new job. We hope that, that our children will turn out well. We hope that our marriage will be a good one. Uh, I hope that England will win the soccer, the football World Cup one day but they never will or they never do anyway <laughs> but in its Christian use the word hope really means something like this it means confident expectation hope is in the Christian use of the word it's, it's the anticipation of something good to come or to put it another way hope is a joyful expectation but here's the question that we ask we may hope for something but, but what basis 
is our hope based on? So, I hope for good exam results. I used to do when I was younger. But that largely depended upon my intelligence and how well I'd prepared for my exam. Uh, you know, I hope that England will win the Football World Cup. But that depends how skillful the players are, how committed they are, and it also depends on how good the opposing teams are. You see, when we face it, most of our hopes die. Because they're dependent upon things that cannot last. So our, our hope for good health, it withers over the years. Our desire for fame and money and for status, those things are very fragile. So so often in our society that we live in, eventually, eventually the things that we sell our souls for, that we give our energy for, the things that we sacrifice our marriages for, and our children for, very often they, they, they flicker out like a candle reaching the end of its wick in the march of the years, in sickness, in stock market crashes, in media frenzies to trash our fame if you've achieved fame. Uh, too often other hopes fade away, they kind of wither and die. There was an English poet called Alfred Tennyson, uh, and he wrote many poems. But he wrote this one poem called In Memorandum, A-H-H, In Memorandum. And in this poem, Tennyson paints the picture of a bride, or soon-to-be bride, waiting for her loved one to return from a faraway country. And there she is, getting ready to meet her fiancé as he's on the journey back, she puts on her best dress and she applies her best makeup, her perfume. The poem is, uh, is alive with human sympathy. Uh, Tennyson was a master of the English language and especially of poetry. And he perfectly captures her anticipation as she, she prepares herself for this awaited reunion. But, he's, but the words that come next to these, he says... But she doesn't know that for days the one she awaits lies floating up on the sea. She doesn't know that the ship he was on has gone down with all of its crew and that he stares at the stars tonight with sightless eyes. She doesn't know. And Tennyson, more than anything else, he captures the crushing and heart-breaking disappointment um, that life can bring almost better than anybody else. But, but, you know, his poem was an allegory. It was a picture of something else. You see, all the while that Tennyson wrote those words, uh, all the while, sorry, in, in the background to his poem, he knew that Victorian England hung in the, in, in the background. And Victorian England was busy rejecting the God of the Bible for an accidental universe. Uh, Victorian England was, was converting the states of human beings from being creatures made in God's image to being highly evolved primates. He knew that his society was seeking a human paradise based on science and technology and education. And it was banishing God from its world. And Tennyson, almost prophetically, he saw ahead to what we might, where we might be now, the kind of the end of the age of modernity, and he saw the colossal disappointment that would come when the implications of rejecting the God of the Bible would finally kick in. It was an allegory, this disappointment of the tragedy of societies rejecting God. Rejecting the hope of the Gospel, the God of Scripture. You see, here's the point that human hopes, they throw us down. 
But the Christian hope, Peter says, is a living hope. So why is it living? There was one, uh, one translator translates it like this. It is a lively hope. Well, it's a living hope, a lively hope, simply because it cannot die. The word, you know, the word living here, a living hope, is the same one that is used of God himself in the New Testament. So when we read the living God, it's the same word. You have a living hope and you have uh, the living God. We are born again to a living hope. You see, what this means is that God takes the hope that we all crave. We all, we all need hope. He takes that hope that we crave and he touches it with his livingness. He breathes into it living hope because he himself is our hope. Our living hope. Our living God, they are, they are bound together and cannot be separated. You see, the Christian's hope is alive the way that God is alive. Because it is God who stands behind our hope as the ultimate guarantor of our hope. He who never changes, he who is all powerful, he who can never die, he stands behind our hope. But interestingly here, Peter tells us something else that's really significant about the Christian's hope. He says says it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So in verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, for Peter, the hope that he's talking about is as sure as the certainty that there was a day in his history when he saw the tomb of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, and it was empty. And his life and the lives of the other disciples were never the same again. Jesus, uh, sorry, Peter was not resting on some wishful thinking, some positive thinking. It was, he was resting this hope on an event in history where Jesus Christ had risen from the dead and conquered death. And his rising from the dead secures our rising from the dead and our, our entrance into heaven. An everlasting life with God. You remember the words of Jesus in John 14. He said, because I live, you too will live. You see, we've been born into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But what is it to? What what is this living hope to? Well, Peter says in verse 4 that it's to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, which is kept in heaven for you. So how do we understand this? Well, I think we understand it by remembering that that Peter had a Jewish mind. And I think he's thinking out of the Old Testament as he writes these words. I think Peter was writing to Christians, well, Peter was writing to Christians who were about to suffer for their confession. Life was hard. He talks about trials and temptations. And in the next few years, terrible things were about to happen to these Christians. Thousands would go to the lions in the Roman arenas. Uh, Countless others were dipped in wax and they were set on fire uh, to light up the garden parties of senior Roman officials. Others were thrown to starving packs of dogs and ripped to pieces. And for Peter himself, ever since Jesus restored him after after the resurrection, Peter lived all of his life under a death sentence. Jesus told him that one day... He would die at the hands of others. Peter knew that suffering was to come to him personally. So his words in this letter were never academic. He's writing truth to himself. 
as he looks ahead. And so here, as he writes, Peter seems to be thinking back in his mind to another time of suffering. I think so anyway, to the origins of the Jewish nation and their inheritance. You see, in the days of their suffering, the Israelite people had been aliens and strangers in a foreign land, like these people were. (coughs) They were slaves in Egypt. And God had promised them a, a land, the promised land. And eventually they received that land and it was parceled out to them. And they were no longer uh, exiles and, and strangers in that land. Um, now they had their inheritance. I think that's what's in Peter's mind as he writes. But the problem is that although the Israelites got their land, it was far from secure. It could be invaded and it could be taken off them. It was on numerous occasions. And even as Peter writes this, uh, the land of Israel was under Roman rule. So in some sense, the land that was the land of promise that once flowed with milk and honey had become over the years a land of suffering and of pain and of drought and of waste. Their inheritance wasn't really worth much in the end. It got corrupted, it got defiled and it faded. And here Peter insists that Christians have a, a better inheritance. It's far more secure than a piece of Middle Eastern real estate. For this inheritance, he insists, is an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and it does not fade away and it's kept in heaven for us. It is a heavenly promised land. And I think Peter is saying, your inheritance is not earthly. It is kept in heaven for you where it can't be corrupted or decayed. So the Christian has an inheritance that God has planned for him or for her And when your world is caving in, as theirs was, we are to be fortified against being crushed by a living hope that no human being can take off us. So what is the believer's inheritance? Very quickly, I'm running out of time. But the believer's inheritance is many things. Um, It is new bodies, resurrection bodies that are incorruptible, that will never die. It is bodies that will never be sick. It is a new city, a new Jerusalem, a new heaven and a new earth. It is being married to Christ who is the, uh, the bride. Um, so uh, we are the bride. The church is the bride of the King of Heaven, Jesus Christ. And in one sense our inheritance is nothing less than God himself. He is our inheritance. Fourthly, and finally, trials. Verse 6, in this you rejoice... Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the test, so that the tested, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I wish I had time to unpack all of that. Just a few comments. (coughs) We have to be honest, I think, as believers, and acknowledge that life is full of trials. I didn't believe that when I was 20 but I believe it now that I'm in my 50s. Life is full of trials. And people who tell you that life is a breeze are lying to you. 
Life is full of disappointments, it's full of setbacks, it's full of physical and emotional pain, it's full of struggles that never seem to end, it's full of fiery temptations to break the promises to those closest to us. Satan has many strategies to discourage believers, but one of them is to make us think that we are the only one who's finding life hard. We're the only one to face such a temptation that others have it easier than we do. Others have an easier marriage, that, our, that others have easier children to bring up, and so on. And all too easy in life, we go down this, if only track, if only, if only I had a different spouse, if only I had more money, if only I'd never had children, if only I was single, if only I'd married. But you know, one of the most valuable lessons that we can learn, that we can learn in life is to accept our lot and learn to be content with what we have and where we are, where God has put us, and find our strength in God. You see, the wise believer refuses to be tricked into the idea that we will ever create heaven here in this life. Sometimes when I let my guard down and life is complicated, I dream of moving to live in the, by the ocean in southwest England, it's beautiful, beautiful beaches, lovely cliff walks, no pollution. Just enjoy the sea air and have very few responsibilities and just sit in a room and write my books. But you know, it's, uh, it's an illusion. It's not what God wants from me anyway. But not only do I think I'd be bored, but actually... My final destination is never in this world. It's always in the next world. You see, the wise believer refuses to be tricked into the idea that we can create heaven here. uh, That we can somehow, if we're clever enough, we can manage our resources and we can control events to ensure a life of comfort and ease, the one that we crave for. Here's the thing, that we mustn't ever place our hope in things that cannot carry that hope to its destination. And my dream holiday in my dream life in Cornwall would never bear the weight of that hope that I might dream of in my carnal moments. But here's the thing, the Christian's hope is designed the Christian's hope is designed to be a shot of adrenaline into us to enable us to go on and live with great resolve in this life in spite of our difficulties. So this passage call, calls us to put our trust in God, to look back to what God has done in history, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it's also a call to look forward to what God will do in the future. Because in the end, Jesus will come again. So this is what I'm saying this morning, in my kind of application, is that the way we think about the future determines how we live in the present. How we think about the future determines how we live in the present. Tim Keller, who of course has just died, He writes these words, this is a kind of paraphrase of of Tim Keller. He says, instead of trying to find perfection here, we sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the joy to come. And we settle into the struggle of human existence with strength and new resolve. When I pastored in England, uh, many times I would go and visit members of my flock who were in nursing homes. And uh, I would look around the room and look at many of these elderly people in their 80s and 90s. Uh, and basically they were re- waiting around to die. 
And the thing that struck me was the complete absence of hope. It was written into their faces. They, were, they didn't know God. They were without uh, God and without hope in the world. But not for the believers that I used to visit. You see, Christians have a cosmic hope. And here's the thing. Our trials don't determine our destiny. Or to put this another way, our trials don't have the final word over us. They're here for a while, but one day they'll be gone forever. And we don't despair in our trials because we can rejoice in the things that are really true about our situation in the midst of our trials. That we belong to God, that he is our father, that our names are written in heaven. And that God's plans will prevail over all the circumstances and tragedy of our own difficulties now. They will not hinder his plans, those difficulties. So once we've got over the need to prove ourselves, or the need to accumulate riches, or the need to protect our reputations, or to have a big career, then we can simply live as servants in the corner of the vineyard of the Lord that God has appointed, allocated to us, with contentment. You know, Christians are not aesthetics. What I mean by that is we're not mystics. Um, we're not people who think that pain and suffering are kind of good. Uh, that we should volunteer for pain and suffering all the time. Um, we're not, Christians are not people who believe that one day we're going to be swallowed up into this kind of non-physical realm, almost like pantheism. Uh, you know, the idea that we should live like monks and wear our hair shirts and live on bread and water and just sleep for four hours a night. I was raised on some of that kind of thinking. But Christianity is not a life-denying creed. You know, Christians are people who seek joy and pleasure and fullness of life and beauty and, and rich relationships. And dare I even say it, we are people who seek for happiness. But the thing that we recognise is that those things are not going to be ours in fullness now in this life. But they will be ours in greater measure than we can ever imagine one day. And we must wait patiently for them. You know, patience is a, a virtue in the Bible that we don't think enough about. But it's all the way through the pages of scripture. Patience. You see, God has planned things for his people that will exceed our expectations by a billion times. You can never out-expect God. You have to, we have to let our dreams soar as high. We can let our dreams soar as high as, as we want to. Because he who believes in God will never be disappointed. C.S. Lewis used to say, this world is not the real world. And we must be careful we don't make it the real world. The real world is yet to come. So for the Christian, there is no fate. There is no final tragedy. There is only a breathtaking destiny. Our dreams will not fail. And there is no sorrow that we encounter on earth, that heaven will not heal. But now we're called to patience and to hard work. We're to embrace our circumstances and taste the powers of the world to come. I want to read to you the words of C.S. Lewis at the end of Narnia. This is the biggest edition of Narnia that I've ever seen, which my wife reads to our children. It's going to break this podium. But the end of uh, the last battle, if you've not read the Narnia books then, Strongly recommend that you read them. Even if, even if you don't understand all the context, then you'll get something from this. 
Then Aslan, who represents Christ, Jesus Christ, Aslan turned to the children and he said, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leapt and a wild hope rose within them. There was a a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over, the holidays have begun, the dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked at them like a lion. Sorry, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they, that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were, they were, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth had read, which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Lewis had this remarkable sense of the world to come in the last battle. Let's pray together. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.